I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Although many define the word nirvana in all kinds of ways, generally it just means enlightenment or the state of full, irreversible spiritual illumination and realization. Not a place, not a continent, not an island, not a heaven, not somewhere you go after you die. But nirvana, the end of suffering, the unfolding of all positivities, Buddhahood, nirvana. In the gradual path, it's seen as the goal of Buddhism, all the schools of Buddhism. And yet, there's the Buddhist saying, there is nirvanic peace in things left just as they are. That pertains very much to our practice. There is nirvanic peace in things left just as they are. That's where we can weigh in. That's where we can apply a lever. That's where we can get our hands on the tiller and steer our craft. There's nirvanic peace in things left just as they are. So leave it as is and rest the weary heart and mind as the master Long Chempa sang. Leave it as is, leaving it as is, resting the weary heart and mind, letting go, letting be, letting come and go, letting be. Flowing, not static, ecstatic, one with everything, not separate. Not resisting, pushing away, aversion, not aggression, not pulling towards desire, lust, attachment either. Just flowing with it, dancing with it, like swimming with whatever the water is doing, the different strokes are possible. The middle way, not too tight, not too loose, not too much and not too little, etc. Not the quietistic, nihilistic on one side, 
and not just materialistic solidifying on the other side. Thus, the Buddhist teaching or conundrum or jawbreaker, mindbreaker. You remember those little candies that you call jawbreakers? Well, these koans or conundrums are like mindbreakers. You chew on them until not just your teeth and your jaw falls off, but your head falls off. It says in the Lankavatara Sutra, things are not what they seem to be. That's the easy part. Things are not what they seem to be, nor are they otherwise. <laughs> then what? That's a mind stopper. Why assert anything? Since I am free from assertions or reifications, I am without fault, cannot be undermined, as the greatest Buddhist philosopher said, Nagarjuna. Without assertions, not dogmatic, not this or that, not everything exists, not it doesn't exist. Neither both nor neither. Inconceivable, mystery. Thus in Zen teaching, it's called no mind, cultivating no mind. Not being a dummy or simplistic, but not relying so much only on rational thought concepts. Being present with or without thoughts, or not knowing, just not knowing, as they say. And knowledge can be an impediment to a direct experience, or conceptual obscurations can obscure the immediacy, the facticity of being, living through our head, living at a little distance from our body, as James Joyce called it, or whatever. So coming home, to ourselves in this practice, just sitting, just breathing, just being, leaving it as it is, like the sky, like the mountain, flowing like the ocean, yet the ocean never leaves its bed. So many images and metaphors, like mirror-like awareness, no matter what appears in the mirror, it reflects it, but it doesn't hold it. It doesn't hold the pretty flowers. It doesn't hold the sticky shit. Even a wet paintbrush appears in front of it, but it doesn't hold the image of wet paint either in the mirror. Thus, the Miller-like, the Miller-like mind. It's Miller time. The mirror-like awareness, mirror-like, crystal-like, sharp, reflective, yet not grasping, not hyperactive, overactive not being bored if nothing's reflected in it, or crystal clear or diamond-like, as in the Diamond Sutra. Diamond-like, what can cut through everything, but it can be cut by nothing, diamond-like wisdom, and so forth. Diamond-like awareness, sharp, penetrating, yet impenetrable, indestructible, immutable, deathless, nirvanic mind, let's say. So we've been chanting, hung in the middle of the tune-up this time, hunging, and we went into a little bit of the clear light meditation from the six yogas, sky gazing with our eyes closed, looking at the inner light as if it's the outer sky, the luminous, expansive, spacious, undifferentiated, clear light of the mind, the inner lucidity, the brilliance of the mind inside, not outside, that's an interesting turnabout or tune-up 
Sometimes we just space out too much. It's good to look in also, but not looking in, especially just still expansive, expanding into that inner spaciousness, that inner infinite, that inner sky. So mingling the outer infinite, the sky, infinite space, with the inner infinite, the space of mind, of awareness, with the secret infinite, just being, dropping even meditation and awareness and just being and trusting and relying on the natural state or whatever it is, whatever state you think you're in, that will do. Naturalness cannot be faked or practiced, although there are approximations of it. I like this clear light meditation because it gives me like a, a different taste or break or feeling or something. I don't know about you, but I like this kind of tune-up. I find like I have something to really focus on or concentrate on or something meaty to, to get dive into or, I don't know, lose myself in and find my true being or something. So I offer to you, exhort you to try it with eyes closed, sky gazing through your eyelids, not looking for anything particularly, just breathing out into the light, breathing in out of the light, focusing on it, becoming it, being it, lightening and brightening up, transparasizing, transrealescent, whatever you want to call it, beyond separateness, beyond subject and object duality, not looking outside for anything, not looking inside for anything, and not getting hung up in between, just free-flowing, as it says in the Diamond Sutra, cultivating the awareness that sticks nowhere, that fixates nowhere, that attaches to nothing. Again, the panoramic 360-degree sphere of awareness. The snow globe of total awareness. When we stop stirring and shaking it, the clarity emerges from within. Everything settles and clarity emerges from within, not from outside. Awareness of awareness, naked awareness, pure presence, presencing, awareing, it's a verb, awareing. Aware of thoughts, if there are thoughts, aware of no thought, if there's no thoughts, aware of sounds, sights, feelings, touch, whatever. Aware, awareness, aware of awareness, not I look at you, not separate, not subject, object, and interaction, the three spheres, the three circles of karmic conditioning in Buddhist psychology. But awareness, aware of awareness, a non-dual or uncompartmentalized totality, lucidity. Mind is sheer lucency, as Kinsey Rinpoche once said. Not just thinking, not just memory, not just all the 51 or 52 mental factors in the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidharma. Sheer lucency, brilliance. And that doesn't just mean smart, that's only IQ. Intuitive, sensitive, penetrating, even psychic, knowing, can be tuned in to other ways of knowing. So many different kinds of intelligence, not just intellectual intelligence, IQ, as we well know. Emotional intelligence, spatial intelligence, somatic body intelligence, relational intelligence, existential intelligence, spiritual intelligence, psychic intelligence, and so forth. And beyond intelligence, like evolutionary intelligence, like chlorophor 
chlorophyll-based plants reach to the sun. I think it's called heliotropism. Who can remember anything ever anymore? As they reach to the sun, the spirit consciousness reaches to the light in its own way. That's evolutionary intelligence. That's not just my will or your will, you see? So trusting that, learning to rely on that kind of naturalness as the way, exploiting your own inner natural resources for change, your own inner gifts, not dying with the music or the dance or the creativity or the originality locked up inside. So one of the definitions of enlightenment or one of the words that comes along with these words today is freedom, autonomy, spontaneity, freshness, outrageous, and so forth. So we can experience that even in our own meditation session. We don't have to wait until one day we're enlightened, fully enlightened like Buddha. There is a Buddha within. We can access that. Zogchen provides direct access to that in the present moment, that kind of freedom, even before we get conditioned again and fall back into our habits. Then we never forget that. And the evolutionary enlightenment impulse, the bodhicitta, continues even more because it's been sort of warmed up or beamed or buzzed or vibrated. You can never forget. So this is a joyous practice, a buoyant practice, an uplifting practice, and a deepening practice, broadening and deepening, not just one way, not just unidirectional, not just silent, not just eyes closed or looking in, with eyes open, with ears open, with everything open, with feeling and emotion and intuition open, integratable with every activity of daily life. Even in the original scriptures, the Pali Sutras of Buddha, the words spoken by Buddha, Buddha himself said there were four main positions to cultivate mindfulness. He didn't call it meditation, he called it cultivating mindful awareness. Sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. That pretty much includes everything, doesn't it? Sitting, but not just sitting meditation, standing, walking, and lying down. Thus, we have chanting meditation, and Tai Chi, and Qigong, and Zen in the art of fill in the blank, and Haiku, and Zen gardening, and every kind of activity can be it. And not just those four positions, but if Buddha was alive today, I'm sure he would include, or she would include jogging or squatting or, you know, thumbing or whatever we do. Because what's the alternative? Mindlessness. And who advocates that? So it's in our higher self-interest to cultivate Zen in the art of thumbing. Hitchhiking. <laughs> it's all in the translation. In my mind, I have this jokey cartoon sequence where, you know, Buddha said 
something, and you know, it's like Chinese whispers. Buddha said, let go, let be. And the next one is kind of, you know, let, let go, get rid of. And the next one is loosen, you know, mostly. And by now it's like, hold on to what you got. You know, <laughs> be solid. Keep it together, man. <laughs> Don't give up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so as we're practicing this seeing through, being through, this Dzogchen natural meditation, naked awareness practice, presencing, being Buddha, seeing through separateness, seeing through yourself, seeing through separation, non-judgmental, non-reactive, present awareness. Things come up and maybe it pushes our buttons. Maybe we go after the bait and bite it and we go down some thought track. We get entangled in a chain of discursive thinking. Then we, then we realize that when we come back, that's remindfulness, remembering to remember, reminding ourselves of what we're doing. Remindfulness, letting go of the thinking and coming back to awareness of thoughts, awareness of physical sensations, and so on. Creating some space between stimulus and response. So we're more present. We don't just blindly react when somebody cuts us off in traffic and jam our foot down on the accelerator and bash them with our Humvee or whatever we drive. We'll flip them the bird, as we do in New York. I mean, it's kind of required. <laughs> or if somebody does something else, retaliating in kind, and then later regretting it. So we create some space between the stimulus and our response. We can choose how, when, and if to respond, not just blindly react. That's the secret of, for example, mindful anger management. But it could be applied to any emotion, mindful desire management or whatever. In the book Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, it's a wonderful, excellent book. She talks a lot about this, the insight teacher, yoga teacher, and psychologist Tara Brock and mother. She talks a lot about this, calls it the sacred pause, creating a pause between stimulus or whatever arises, outer or inner. You know, you might feel an itch and pause before you scratch it. Or you see a mosquito, you might pause and think about it before you swat it. As my first meditation teacher, more or less, first Goenkaji used to say in India in the 70s, and we would have these 10-day meditation courses, silent, with 10 or 12 one-hour sittings, and three of them you weren't allowed to move at all. You like vow not to move. And India is full of mosquitoes and flies and bugs and other creepy crawly things. And you'd be sitting there, and you know you'd hear you'd hear the dreaded, <laughs> and it would land, of course, always somewhere like your nose. <laughs> Maybe if you're lucky, your earlobe, which is still a little itchy, but you know, it would land on your nose. You know. <laughs> And you're not allowed to move, but nobody said anything about blowing. <laughs> of course, that's moving and reacting and trying to get rid of, but you know. <laughs> or it'd be on your ear and you'd be like trying to like shake it off, you know, without moving, which means like kind of move your ear, you know. 
or breathe out of your ear a little, you know, like <laughs> scare it off. And then Goenkaji would say, well, you know, there are many ways to relate to things. Just because a little mosquito is coming around and smells something and is hungry and hasn't had dinner yet, and, you know, you're there and it lands on you and it wants to have a drink, doesn't mean you have to kill it. You could wish it have a good meal and a safe flight home. That would be the Buddhist loving kindness response. You're big. It's not going to kill you. One might actually do that. It was, I was like, you know, I was 20 years old. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> have a nice drink and a safe flight home, you tsetse fly, mofo. <laughs> How we respond, it's not, you know, we can't control the wind, but we can learn how to sail better. It's not what happens to us, but what we, how we react to it, what we make of it that makes all the difference. That's the secret of karma, of character and conditioning and of destiny and fate. Just like it's so subjective, whether you feel hot in here or cold in here right now, you know, if you're from the equator, you might feel it's cold in here because it's air conditioned and you're all swaddled up. If you're from the north, you might feel it's warm in here and kind of, you know, dressed down. It's so subjective. All the temperature is exactly the same in either case. Similarly with what we like and don't like, a rainy day, a sunny day, or other things. Even at the level of things that we would generally say we don't like or are bad, like pain, from the Buddhist point of view, there's still a difference between pain and suffering. Pain is a sensation, a physical reaction, a survival mechanism. Your body needs to feel pain in order to avoid fires and other things and know there's something wrong to fix. But how much you suffer from it is muchly up to oneself. So a Buddhist wise guy said that in life pain is inevitable but suffering is optional. That's a very profound point how you react to it. If you get a headache and you start worrying about it and sweating about it and contracting and giving yourself a migraine, that's suffering on top of suffering, not just little pain. Now, I know I shouldn't bring this up, but I've heard that people who do natural childbirth, I know I'm going to get in trouble, but just hear me. <laughs> Take pity on this poor male that there's a way of breathing into it and, you know, of course it's painful, but that you even suffer as much from it. You might even experience ecstasy or joy or transported beyond yourself, or, you know, something beyond. So pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Even in your own experience, you know, sometimes you have a mosquito bite or an itch or something and it feels so good to scratch it till it hurts, right? Even if you're not a masochist, it feels good to scratch it till it hurts. I don't know about you, but I even get a, a match out sometimes. You know, it depends. <laughs> depends what state I'm in. <laughs> Burn it out. <laughs> it's kind of the Apache way. <laughs> anyway, the mind is crazy. That's the fact. Some people feel like they're crazy, but in the Buddhist analysis, mind is crazy. You know, and in the land of the crazy, the sane seem crazy. So here we're practicing becoming more sane 
developing wisdom and unselfishness and selfless love and compassion and empathy and connectedness and all that is sanity. It's a heightened form of sanity. If you're getting worse, if your life's get falling apart, if you're getting more flaky, obviously you might reconsider whether you're, you're you know, you're, what you're doing. Wisdom is a higher form of sanity, if anything. So any questions, please? We're getting toward the end of the week. I have a feeling some of you are a little slower to the draw. You haven't asked your, got your question in. I haven't heard much from some of the newer people. I know some of the old students, they ask complicated, sophisticated questions. Nobody asked me about how to deal with knee pain or back pain or boredom or any, you know, the basics. So don't be shy. Been there, done that, still doing that. Yes. Can Hi. you... Uh... Explain if there is any difference between mindfulness and awareness yes. and how that might relate to uh, our subject. Yes, good question. First of all, all of these words are just words, so it depends how you define them. And they would be defined in different ways by different people or different traditions. So in the basic Buddhist tradition, mindfulness is what you know is emphasized. Mindfulness Sutra. Mindfulness practice, mindfulness of the four foundations of mindfulness, and so on. You're familiar with those things since you asked, right? So where is awareness in that? Where does, it, does the word come up at all? The word consciousness comes up, but is awareness even come up in there? Not much. Remember, neither mindfulness nor awareness are in the original teachings. It was not in English. <laughs> So in English, we have these words, and they, so we have to, if we look back into the texts, there may be some differences, you know, to be discerned, and some similarities, and some looseness. So how we use it is important. So in the Mahayana and Vajrayana teachings, we use the word awareness, sometimes with a capital A, to distinguish or make something bigger than mindfulness. Of course, mindfulness if, goes all the way. But it's not just about mind. So awareness, for example, mindfulness of the four foundations of mindfulness is what Buddha taught, found it for, mindful of form, physical form, things, solid, form, feelings, and perceptions, what, intentions, and consciousness, or dharmas. So... We would say awareness would be a little bigger in this, this sense, like it's hard to be mindful if you're in a coma, but you could be aware. People hear things in a coma, so I guess the awareness is there. Again, how do you define it? Maybe you're not, it's not you are aware and there's no will, but there is aware, you know, something remembers that you heard it. They say, people say, this is not my idea. Also, it's not Buddha's example. Um, you could be aware of, no, of a state of no thought. Have you ever, anybody experienced no thought, but you're not asleep? So that's like awareness, not so much mindfulness of something. So that's a distinction we make. So mindfulness, of course, goes all the way, and it's one of the, you know, it's the pivot of the seven factors of enlightenment and all that. But um, we say awareness, especially with a capital A, it's more like a bigger 
that's how we're using the word, the term. So mindful of thoughts is awareness. This is mere nomenclature from the okay. different traditions. Awesome, great, thanks. Okay. For example, we would say awareness of awareness, like awareness of whatever's, you know, the flow of awareness, stream of consciousness. We never hear mindful of mindfulness, right? So again, this kind of non-dual or trying to go past the subject-object dichotomies of mindfulness to the whole picture is like awareness. Of course, you could call it mindfulness, no problem. Hi. I was actually first introduced to you in California, in Pasadena, but I live in Canada now. And um, actually, I try not to compare my insides with other people, my insides with other people's outsides, but I am one of the people here whose basketball hoop is regulation size. Um, and um, as much, and often when I meditate, I feel like I'm playing whack-a-mole. I've got so much coming up, and I um, am, I, I figured out, um, with Nima's help, that I'm not supposed to whack them all, but um, it, still, they, it still comes up. What did she tell you to whack? <laughs> Just notice them. Just notice them. And, but still, it's like I can't sometimes tell the difference between when my mind is just wandering or lots of things are coming up and when I'm really sort of getting into meditation or I, and I look for, I guess, things to calm down. And, mm -hmm. and it, that hasn't always happened. That hasn't happened this week a whole lot for me. And I'm just wondering... Is there something I'm doing wrong, <laughs> or is there something that I uh, um, I really try to? I don't know. Maybe I'm trying. That's it. But but I, maybe you what? I, maybe I'm trying. Maybe that's the problem. But I I feel, well, we're all trying. Let's not yeah. pretend. Yeah. But, but I how feel, much and what fits and what isn't? Yeah, and what's and it, too much and, and, and sometimes what's it just feels enough, like too much know. going on. And I and I want it to. You, you mentioned things sort of calming down, or and and that's what I guess I'm seeking. And I'm wondering if there's some tips, tricks, something that I can do to, to at least reduce the number of moles that are popping up, maybe. Well, this practice is not about reducing the number of um, things that come up. It's about awareness, about getting to know yourself better and how things work and come up. So you have more spacious, you wear it more lightly, whatever, you know, you're, you're less reactive to it or burdened by it or you don't have to carry it all you can let them come up you don't have to keep all the balls up in the air you can let them come up and fall also wherever they fall maybe wherever they fall or fall in place on their own i don't know wherever they fall might be the right place there's a lot of metaphors for this but first practically have you, you meditated before are you new with this or what yeah, I've meditated before, yes. So you said you had a regulation-sized hoop. So what kind of meditation have you been doing, and you know, like, how much, regularly or long? Um, I've been meditating um, off and on for years. Um, I've been doing um, uh, vipassana meditation, sort of eyes closed, probably more than anything else mm -hmm. for many years. And in the last couple of years, actually, since about five years ago when I got introduced Zogchen, I started trying doing eyes open meditation, which is a little bit of a challenge for me. And I try to meditate every day. That's good. 
So you started off your question with saying you can't tell whether you're calm, you know, getting anything or not, or the difference between agitated and what you were thinking of as the meditative state. After all these years, you can't, you don't see any differences, or I won't even talk about progress, but you can't tell whether you're, you know, just sitting there and thinking about your usual th thoughts and preoccupations, or you're more mindful, aware, relaxed, um, spacious, calm, non-reactive. You can't tell? Um, sometimes I, I feel more calm and less reactive. Um, but sometimes I don't, and I guess I'm dissatisfied with the amount of time that I don't, considering, I guess, the amount of time I'm trying to put into this. Right. I, have, I, I do have limited time that I can sit, actually, because of, you talked about pain issues and stuff like that, so I have that issue also, so I go for shorter... You have chronic pain or yeah. something? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, now you're interested in pain and chronic pain, that's maybe another subject related, but still on the, the sort of mostly the first part. I also, you know, sometimes agitated or whatever you call distracted and so, sometimes less so. But I, I learned not to grade or rate my meditations or compare. Of course, sometimes you have to evaluate, like, is this worth doing? Like you said, you know, you put time, to, you know, if it's not working, it's not working. But you don't have to be evaluating every minute and every time you meditate and every day. It's like a relationship. If you're evaluating every day whether you should stay with your husband or not, it's a very problematic scenario. Yeah. I mean, once in a while, one is certainly allowed to consider that. Yeah. But how often before it gets really problematic? So that's one thought about comparing and, you know, judging and evaluating. Also, do you have a teacher or an instructor or anybody no. you learn Vipassana from or other things that you no, can talk not, to no, and get clarification? Because that could help. Yeah. That, that helps along the way. Also, you could read in books and see what other people experience or say. A lot of these things come up in frequently asked question lists. You can look it up on the web or in, you know. Q&As in books like uh, Dharma Talks, and there were Q&As at the end of my chapters of Dharma Talk books and things like that. You know, you could see what the people of old, the masters and other people in their, order, in their biographies go through, or the Western teachers of today. Yeah, well, it's, I think part of the problem is the last three years I've sort of been on my own. It's hard to do this alone, and um, I'm not saying everybody needs a guru, but, you know, teachings, teachers, elders, kindred spirits, helpful. Mm. Questioning and clarifications, helpful. Okay. And keep going. I mean, I, I learned to meditate in 1968 when I was in college with Zen Master Kaplau Roshi in Rochester, New York, at the Rochester Zen Center. He was the first American Zen teach, uh, master, Philip Kaplau Roshi author of the three pillars of Zen. And, but I couldn't meditate in college. There was too much smoke in the air or something. <laughs> yeah. Also, I was never up in the morning. Yeah. And, but then in 1971, I went to my first 10-day Vipassana course with Mr. Goenka in India. And after that, you know, meditated every day until now. But I still have, you know, Good air days and bad air days. Sometimes I can't find my breath to concentrate on. That's a bad air day. 
But in general, you know, you have a spiritual practice year-round and a spiritual life, and you keep going and questioning and trying different things and going deeper into the one or whatever, you know, the one or ones that really speak to you, work for you. Thank you. And chronic pain is another whole subject. Maybe if you're pained when you're sitting, you could try standing or lying down or doing it in a hot tub or the bathtub or something. I'm not joking. There's no reason not to do it in the bathtub or the hot tub. There's no reason not to do it lying down except for... <laughs> There's no excuse. <laughs> Last question, anybody? Anybody we haven't heard from? Who haven't we heard from? Yes, over there in the back. <clears throat> Hi. Um, so, yesterday, I... Um, Another one from, Cal from the West Coast. I know you're living East Coast now. Go East on. Coast, but yeah, West Coast at heart and in mind, body, and spirit. In fact, whenever you talk about meditating with the mind, the mountain, and the ocean, I'm in Vancouver sitting up on a yeah. mountain somewhere. Right. We have that here, too. I know. I know. It's not as big, though. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's not as expansive, but that gets to my question, actually. Okay. Um, so yesterday I made this intention, after spending some time with you, actually, um, to try to make myself bigger to with the idea that in doing that, I could expand through a difficult situation in my life and very painful stuff. And um, then um, last night, <laughs> I had this really expansive experience in here sitting, meditating. And uh, it was kind of cool. And oh, yeah. It, and it was also very, very familiar, as um, this lady was saying. It felt very familiar. And uh, like something I've been doing on some level since I was a little kid, or, or something maybe that I unlearned and try, have tried to relearn many times. Um, so that was kind of cool and kind of interesting. And um, then last night, so, so in, in the meditation, I had this very expanding experience where I kind of, I felt like I kind of left my body and filled just this space, not beyond, but just this sort of encapsulated space here. And then um, after, I, after that happened, I thought, wow, you know, I, I started to intellectualize it and started to think, wow, I hope this helps. Like, I hope this really like helps me deal with some of this stuff. And then I went to sleep, or was going to sleep, and I had this really interesting awareness of like this sort of opening in my conscious head, um, whereby for the first time in a really long time, I was able to turn off like the the internal problem solver, the the part of me that's like, since I left my relationship of 22 years, some not too long ago, that part of me has been 
figuring it all out like every night, like everything that happened over and over and over again. And I haven't been able to turn it off. And so I felt like for the first time in a long time, I, I actually experienced this conscious place that I was able to go to in my own head to get away from, not to get away from, but a place where all that stuff wasn't going on. And I just, I thought I had a question in there, but maybe I don't. <laughs> so that sounds good. So where, where did, you, did you find that today or was that just last night that you could go to that place in, in your head as you call it? Um, where all that's not going on? No, I find that it, I, um, I think it's still there. So can you go there or just do you think it's still there? No, I can go there. So you've been going there today? Yes. Good. So we call that practice, you know, practicing, you glimpse the view, then you practice like stabilizing it or getting used to it or sitting there, you know, the still eye in the center of the storm or whatever, eye of the cyclone or whatever you want to call it. These are just words of finger painting with words. If it relieves, it's a relief, then that's one of the indicators that it's valid. Not just the relief of sleeping all day, that could be contraindicated. So actually, you sort of got my question out of that because I was wondering, is this valid? Is this real? Did the, is this meaningful? Is well, this... is it relieving to you and not just in the way that, like, you know, getting drunk might be temporary relieving? I'm hoping that it is. Yeah, right. So check it out. Yeah. See, I, I don't take my word for it. Maybe it's just a trance. But it doesn't sound like it. Also, there's a few more days here, so if you're, you're not going along with the instructions and the teachings that may or may not be um, parallel or congruent with that, then you can see, you know, how it goes. Mm -hmm. Learn more about, how, you know, what's your natural, quote, state or place or home or refuge, where you can find refuge, what you can rely on, not Buddha. That's mm -hmm. a nice concept, but what is Buddha? but how you can find refuge in that. I want to say again what I said before, there's nirvanic peace in things left just as they are. So if you can be in that just as they are state, there's great relief and peace in that. And it's not just a stupa, a torpa, a dozing, an inebriation, a hiding. That's fantastic. That's what the scriptures and the teachers and the masters are pointing to. That's Buddha's intent, as we call it. That's the Buddha's intent for us. Thank you. May we all experience it or find refuge there. Mm -hmm.